Well, if you are uh, a fan of happy endings, <laughs> if you're uh, a, a fan of um, happy, happily ever after stories or the good guy wins kind of books, right, then you're not going to like the end of Nehemiah. <laughs> I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 13 in your Bibles, maybe your Bible apps. If you pick up one of those Bibles in front of you, that Nehemiah 13 is page 486, okay? Now, the celebration and the dedication that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 12 has ended. Nehemiah's 12 years of serving as the governor in Jerusalem is complete, and his return to Babylon, and apparently the commitment of God's people to his ways ended when Nehemiah left. We read in Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 6, But while all this was going on, which we'll read back here in a minute, I, meaning Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, we're not sure how long, but sometime later, I asked the king's permission and came back to Jerusalem. Okay. I've spoken with a lot of you as we've journeyed through this Ezra and Nehemiah series. And along with the prophets that we looked at that, were, um, that lived in, and worked in the same time as Ezra, Malachi is a prophet that worked in the same time as Nehemiah. So during this time period. But after these books, after these events that we're reading about here in chapter 13, there's silence for 400 years between the end of the writing and the times of the Old Testament until the life of Jesus, as far as the scriptures go. So we're right at the end of the Old Testament era as it relates to the scriptures here and won't hear anything until the life of Jesus through the scriptures. Now flip your pages back to Nehemiah 10. So I want to reference where the people were in the choices they were making, in the commitments they were making, and contrast that with the change of behavior that we're going to see in chapter 13. So in Nehemiah 10, beginning in verse 28, we read these words. You'll remember them from a couple weeks ago. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with all their wives, and their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join with their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all of the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. Okay? Yet, okay? Yet, in the book of Malachi, Okay, that's on page 949 of those chair Bibles, by the way. We read this indictment against the hypocrisy of these same people who want to argue with God. They want to argue about what it is that God owes them. And they want to claim God's blessing as his people when their lives do not reflect a commitment to either God or God's ways. So it was beyond a slow fade, if you would. We're talking about a swift departure from these ways. In Malachi, God is going to indict the priests 
for the fact that they are offering on the altar injured or lame or blemished animals for sacrifice. They're giving God the leftovers, the discard. We don't want this one anyway. Let's just offer it to God. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 10, God says this. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. Remember the temple? The, peop- the, the temple that God sent them back to Jerusalem to rebuild? The doors and the, the w- gates and the walls of, of which Nehemiah had just had purified in the previous chapter? Those temples, those temple doors, he said, so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Next chapter, chapter 2, verse 16 of Malachi, God indicts the men of God for being unfaithful to their wives. He says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one that he should protect. In the very next verse, verse 17, God says that the people weary him. They weary him by what they say. See if this doesn't sound eerily familiar to what goes on in our day and time. God says that the people are saying, his people are saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. And then chapter 3, verse 5, God speaks directly to the people through Malachi when he says, So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me. And then the same people who said after a series of specific commitments that they would make in chapter 10, verse 38 of Nehemiah, that we will not neglect the house of God. Now neglect the house of God. So God addresses them in Nehemiah chapter, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. He said, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. But you ask, how are we, I'm sorry, but return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, what a, what a mess they've become in such a short time. Temple worship has become tainted. Provision for the temple and for God's servants um, has been abandoned. Pagan customs 
have been adopted. Marriage standards disappeared. So Nehemiah returns to a monumental task. You might have thought that rebuilding the wall of a city was a big task, but it's nothing compared to the changing of people's hearts. Theirs wasn't a slow fade. It was a fast run in the opposite direction of God. And so back in chapter 13, we're going to break this up into three sections. Each one of these sections deals with a specific way that the people have broken their vows to God that they've committed to earlier and a decisive response by Nehemiah to their unfaithfulness. And we begin with the cleansing of the temple. Now, when, when, when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, okay, he finds the temple is in complete disarray. If you're in chapter 13, look with me at verse 4. It says, Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Okay? Remember Tobiah, one of the enemy leaders? One of the, uh, the Ammonite who was opposed to the building of the wall and gave Nehemiah and the people so much hassle and threat for going ahead with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem? That Tobiah. He was buddies with him. And he provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil that was prescribed for the Levites, for the musicians and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. Okay, so follow with me. There's an empty storeroom that used to hold all these things. The reason that it's empty is because the people have stopped giving the offerings. And so this priest, Eliashib, who has this um, alliance, if you will, with the enemy Tobiah, he allows a foreign leader who wasn't even permitted in the temple area to have a room inside the temple to advance his influence and his business interests in Jerusalem. Can you see why God might have been so angry when he addressed the people in Malachi? They're so far from where they had been. You might understand why Nehemiah says in verse 8 that he was greatly displeased. Okay, maybe a better translation some of you might have says in verse 8 that he was angry, really angry. So he responded to this evil. He throws everything out of the room that had been given to Tobiah, and not just this room, but all of the rooms of the temple were purified. And he called God's people to once again bring their tithes and their offerings to, to the temple. And he engaged the Levites and the musicians to serve. They, they had left Jerusalem. Since there were no offerings, since there was nothing to take care of them, their families couldn't even be provided for. And so they'd left and he called them back and called them back into service. And he took, put new men of integrity, new priests in charge of all things related to the temple. Nehemiah cleaned house. That's what he did. He cleaned house. And you can't help but think about the similarity to Jesus' actions in the New Testament where he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple because he was so angry with what they were doing. And so the question, like application, is, is how are you doing towards your commitments, toward giving 
and serving. I mean, the, the temple was a hub for both of those things, as is the church today. Like we started off our COVID journey months ago in a bit of a slump financially, and, and we made some changes, and, and you as a church responded to those changes. And through God's provision, we've been able to remain healthy are. Yet as time has passed, we've watched our offerings slow down again and commitments falter and, and we find ourselves as a leadership looking ahead to a post-COVID church. That, that's in faith, right? <laughs> looking to this post-COVID church and a bit of um, a financial slump, trying to make some changes as a result of things. And yet we don't know always who and what we can count on in terms of tithes and offerings. And that, that creates a bit of a challenge for us in the church leadership. But God must struggle with our giving at times. I mean, he's the one who sustained us as individuals and as families during this crisis, only to have us respond at times by, by holding on to his blessings instead of returning a portion to him in gratitude. The people of Israel, we've watched, we've talked about in this series, they cycle between this uh, faithfulness to God, like the commitments in Nehemiah chapter 10, when they were faithful to his kingdom, and then in times when they build their own kingdoms, like in Nehemiah 13, or like in the book of Malachi. Malachi gives us a picture about how, uh, of how God feels about our cycles of selfishness. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's your treasure? And are there adjustments that might need to be made in, in both your heart and perhaps even in your finances. Well, wandering hearts bear fruit. And so there are a lot of different ways that we see that in Nehemiah 13. But as we move forward, we find Nehemiah is going to have to work to once again restore the Sabbath. Okay? Now, we've talked about the Sabbath and Sabbath concepts a couple of times in this series. What Nehemiah finds is that the people of God in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area that they're working on the Sabbath. And they're buying and selling on the Sabbath. And they're doing business with foreigners on the Sabbath. And beginning in verse 17, we read that Nehemiah rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't our ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on the city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Okay? So Nehemiah shut the gates on the Sabbath. And he put his men in charge of keeping them shut because he knew he could trust them to do that. So that the merchants couldn't come and, and sell their things in the city on the Sabbath. Some of them still came and they camped outside the gate hoping that it would be opened. And they did it so often that Nehemiah got tired of it and he threatened to imprison them 
if they showed up again with their stuff on the Sabbath outside the gates. And so that finally stopped. In the meantime, Nehemiah took the Levites, who were not called to be gate guards, but he put them in charge of the city gates on the Sabbath because he knew they would be true to God's standards and they would keep the gates shut. So in the cycles that we see, we see God bless this nation. He renewed his covenant with them. And then the people, as we've seen in the study, they honored God once again. And God blessed them as a result. But their ultimate response was to build their own kingdoms and to again return to their own wisdom, neglecting God and neglecting his kingdom. Nehemiah warns them that they're repeating history without learning the lesson. Like we've been down this road, don't you remember what it got us? They made a promise, a binding agreement to bring their tithes and offerings to God. And they broke it. They'd made a binding agreement to observe the Sabbath. And now they're breaking it. And you remember their agreement was made not only with an oath, like a promise, but also with a curse? Nehemiah, he's using his authority to restore purity to the city and to encourage faithfulness from God's people. Yet his actions, like they show a distrust of the people and their leaders to do what is right on their own because they had proven to be untrustworthy. Now with regard to the Sabbath in you and I, have you learned that more work doesn't always equal more money? Have you figured that out yet? Have you figured out that more time and energy poured into earning a living does not always equal a better life? That's God's wisdom. They expanded their work to include the Sabbath, but they neglected God and his kingdom. And they lost his blessing. And it was a foolish trade-off. Now, now I'm confident that you and I are familiar with foolish trade-offs. Right? Because we've all made them. They're common, they're un, they're common to humanity. Okay? But what is uncommon to humanity is repentance. What's uncommon is making a change once we've discovered that we're on a wrong path. We figure out we're in a poor pattern when we move away from God's best in our lives. Fortunately, God's mercies are new every day. And he allows changes at any point in life. Even this point that you and I are at today. We read in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So to us, today, God would say, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. If God is speaking to you, listen. Listen. 
and obey. That's what Nehemiah hoped for in the people in Jerusalem and Judah, Judah, but it wasn't what he got. Back in our text, once again, familiar territory with the people of Judah, we see Nehemiah disciplining the people. Okay? You'll remember that, that at least twice before in this series, we've come across passages where the people separated themselves from their marriages to people of other nations. Okay? Nehemiah's gone for a bit of time. We don't know exactly how long, but he returns to Jerusalem to find they've broken yet another commitment. They've married women from Ashdod and from Ammon and from Moab, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Judah, the enemies of God's people. In fact, if you read through the text, it says some of their children don't even speak the language of Judah. Look with me at verse 25, Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah says, I rebuked them. And I called curses down on them. I, had some, I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? So Nehemiah, he confronts the offenders and he disciplines the men who've committed the sin and he makes them take a new oath. His actions that may seem a little drastic and over the line to you in our culture, but they weren't in his. And if we're not careful, we read these words and we miss, perhaps, in the reaction to a cultural response, the reality. Intermarriage with other nations, Nehemiah says, it threatens the integrity of Israel as a nation. And it puts them in a position to receive God's wrath. Solomon, even with all his wisdom, is a prime example of foolish choices. Mixed marriages compromise their religion, it compromises their culture, and ultimately, Nehemiah says, it compromises their obedience to God. Things had, had gone so far awry that even the priest Eliashib, that his son, had married the daughter of Sanballat, the Horonite. Now, he was the leader of the enemies of Israel when this wall was trying to be built. He was the chief person that gave them the most grief, and here a priest's son is marrying his daughter. Nehemiah drives him, Eliashib, the, the priest, and his family drives them out of Judah, and he purifies the priests once again, and he assigns new ones to the task, making provisions for sacrifice and making provisions for offerings once again. So all of this building to the crescendo we've been in the series that took us last week to chapter 12 is undone in the very next chapter of the book, in the very next chapter in the history of God's people. And whereas Ezra and Nehemiah found a people that were willing to repent and return to God, 
This time when Nehemiah returns, he finds a people that are not so moved. In fact, it's shown by these decisions that he makes, the things he has to put in place after he confronts each of these um, wayward ways of the people when he starts adding guards and treasurers and new priests and putting them in place just to protect the practices against the people. It's very sad. As we wrap up this chapter in this series, I want us to consider in a word, the word faithfulness. Okay? It's our ultimate responsibility. Just like it was theirs, it's ours as well. Um, I purposely, purposely skipped over three different prayers that Nehemiah offers in this chapter 13 because I wanted to take them as a group. The first prayer comes in verse 14. This is after Nehemiah cleanses the temple. He prays this prayer, Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done. Maybe your version would say, My acts of faithfulness for the house of my God and its services. Here he's going to contrast his actions with the actions of the people. They have forsaken the covenant, but Nehemiah has been faithful to the covenant and faithful to his vows. He's kept them, even in another nation. Perhaps Nehemiah asked God uh, not to blot out his acts in contrast to how his previous acts of setting up worship and offerings had been destroyed by both the unfaithful leaders and the people. The next prayer comes in verse 22. Here he prays after the section describing his actions to reinstate and protect the Sabbath. He says in verse 22, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Now, you'll notice that as the chapter progresses, if you read it all as one, Nehemiah's hope and his optimism digress. Okay? And we see it in his prayers. Perhaps he was anticipating that God was going to remove his blessing from the people. Or maybe that God was going to call them on that binding agreement they made to obey him by bringing punishment on them. Minimally, like we have to conclude that Nehemiah is asking for God to have mercy on him, even if the people refuse to engage God because he's still choosing to engage God. And then Nehemiah prays simply in verse 31, the last prayer says, remember, we, remember me with favor, my God. Yeah. He must have been feeling a bit um, alone and limited in his ability to move the people. Limited in his ability to once again change the culture like he had done before. He knew that he was legislating change, okay? but that the hearts of the people were not obeying God. And they were not obeying his word. They were simply being forced to because he told them to. And he had the power to punish them for it. It was realistic for him to think that none of his changes would last. Because remember, he's going to leave again. And he thought, this time they're going to leave with me. So he simply um, asked God not to remember him for all of his good work, but just to remember Nehemiah writes the truth 
something that's uncommon to us in a day where everything has a spin, right? In our day, there's an expectation um, that the truth is going to be colored to suit any particular cause that any person has. And an assumption that many leaders are just dishonest. And sadly, sometimes even maybe dishonest leaders in the church. But this is about us here. We must be faithful to the truth. You and I, the more we are, the more we will honor God. The more we're faithful to the truth, the more we will earn a hearing amongst those that we live with who desperately need to hear the truth. And we have to be faithful. We must be faithful to holiness. Even when other people turn away. We, like Nehemiah, have to pursue this righteous God and pursue his ways. In the end, like Nehemiah and like his final prayer, we're going to be judged not on the success of our efforts and the lives of others, but on our own faithfulness to God. There's a legend about an ancient village in Spain. Um, the king was to come visit this village. And like for a thousand years of the history of this village, a king had never visited. And the people were super excited and said, we need to celebrate. But it was a poor village and they didn't have a lot. So someone came up with this great idea. Each of the people in the village were known for making their own wine. So the idea was that we are all going to make our best wine. And we're going to bring a cup of that wine and we're going to offer it to the king. But what we're going to do is all of us are going to come and we're going to pour it in this vat. And then we'll give some to the king. It'll be the best wine he's ever tasted and he would be honored. And so the day before the king was to arrive, the vat was built and a step up to it was built and, and hundreds of people lined up, each one by one, bringing a cup of their best wine, climbing the step and pouring it into the vat. And eventually the vat was filled and the king came and he was ushered to the center of their village. He was given a silver cup and told, we have made for you the best wine that you'll ever taste. So he steps up and he puts the cup under the spigot and he turns the handle and he takes a drink of water. Every person thought, you know, I don't have a lot. And so, like, I'm just going to give water. I mean, there's so many people in our village. The king would never know that I put in water because everyone else is going to put in wine and yet everyone and the whole village thought that. And they all poured water into the vat, and the king was greatly dishonored by their gift. How are you doing with honoring God with your commitments and honoring God with your life? How are you doing in your giving? How are you doing with honoring God in your work? How are you doing in your marriage? How are you doing in your holiness? 
how are you doing at making your life a gift to your king? Sometimes we just need to change. And if you need to change, we can help. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'd love to talk to you afterwards about how you can make a change, a change that might be more honoring to your king or how you might even give your life itself to your king. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us so much, including just such an ample supply of chances to do right and be right and honor you, to embrace truth, to embrace holiness, to live a life that is pleasing and obedient to you and your ways, to turn away from a foolish decision and embrace you. Or today, if we hear your voice, may we not harden our hearts. May we instead listen and respond. In the name of